Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin in association with Penguin Living. I'm Melissa Hemsley, your guide in this new series, exploring the art of self-improvement with authors, experts and curious minds. Today we're discussing how to create healthy habits, something that might be on all of our minds as the new year kicks off. But how exactly do you create a healthy habit? And more importantly, how do you enjoy it? Here to supply answers to these burning questions are today's guests. I'm thrilled to welcome to my table today, Megan Jane Crabb, a BOPO, that's body positivity, crusader, blogger, social media queen, and author of a fantastic book titled Body Positive Power. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. And also with us is Roman Krasnarek, a world-class popular philosopher, co-founder of The School of Life, and author of Empathy, why it matters and how to get it, and Carpe Diem Regained. Hello to you. Hello. Coming up later in the show, we'll be talking about how mindset and healthy habits can help in other areas of our life. From GP and presenter Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, who believes that stress management can have significant effects on our physical health and lifespan. We'll be hearing about his book, The Four Pillar Plan, to find out more. So 2018 is here. Welcome 2018. A fresh start. And some of us might be thinking about the areas of our lives which need a little tender, loving care. So um, for me a second, this year, I'm going to try and be a little bit more patient with myself. Um, patience, patience, patience. And to you, what, what are you thinking about for 2018? Mine is really similar. I think I'm a bit of a uh, recovering perfectionist. So give myself a break would be, uh, yeah, priority number one. Roman. I'm going to try and nurture my curiosity about strangers. I'm going to have a conversation oh. with a stranger at least once a week and talk to the kinds of people I don't normally meet. Have you done that this week yet? No, I'm about to do it this afternoon as I walk around North London. And, how, and just out of interest, how would you spark up a conversation? Well, you can go the extreme version. Go up to a stranger and say, what would you like written on your tombstone? That can be a little bit extreme for some people. So sometimes I just say, what were you thinking about at 11 o'clock this morning? Or in what ways would you like to be more courageous? And it's amazing that people do want to talk. It's a myth that the English want to keep all their emotions to themselves. Actually, give people a chance and they will open up. I love it. So not even a comment on the weather. You'll just go straight in with that big question. No, I think you've got to skip over weather and football and go straight to the stuff that matters in life. <laughs> I love it. So we've got be more patient, give yourself a break, recovering perfectionist. And what was it? Nurture your curiosity about strangers. about strangers. Talk to a stranger once a week. I love it. Okay, three amazing ideas to start with. So at the heart of both your books is this notion of empathy. Roman, you say, empathy is an essential ingredient for well-being. Can you tell us about it? 
Well, empathy is the art of stepping into the shoes of another person and looking at the world through their eyes. It's very different from sympathy, which is just kind of feeling sorry for somebody. But empathy is where you really try to imagine what it's like to be them. And we all know that this matters for lots of parts of our lives. Just think if you're arguing with your partner or your husband or your wife and you sometimes think to yourself, oh, God, I wish they could just see things from my point of view. I wish they could just look at the world through my eyes. But what are you asking for? Empathy, of course. You want them to step into your shoes, if only for a moment. And the psychologist, Daniel Goleman, has said, you know, empathy is the key to emotional intelligence. Without empathy, we're kind of emotionally tone deaf. So it really matters for our well-being. And Megan, how do you feel about empathy? Do you think it's powerful? I think it's probably one of the most powerful emotions in the world. I think a lot of what I do is teaching people how to be empathetic towards themselves, which should be something that's so simple and so natural, but is so alien in a world where you're consistently being told every day that you're not good enough and there's always something about you to fix and something that is wrong and you can't even trust your own emotions sometimes. So empathy, it's incredibly valuable. And yeah, I'm really excited to be sat next to you and to hear more about you as well. Equally. Oh. He's fascinating. I was just saying to you, wasn't I? I, I, I started one YouTube video on you and then the whole playlist of Roman Krasnarik videos came on and I before I knew it was two hours later something you said actually a couple of things that really stood out were empathy can make you good inverted commas and it can make you feel good so it's like this double whammy of positivity rather and one other thing you said was can you tell us about the the outrospection and the fact that over the last sort of I feel like when I was growing up, it was very much every man for himself, every woman for, for themselves. And you're encouraging us to look outwards. Yeah, I mean, I think for the last century, when people have thought about how should I live, they think about Socrates, for example, who said, you know, to live the good life, you have to know thyself. And we've normally thought that's about looking inside ourselves, kind of introspection. And that's really important, of course. It's really important for self-empathy or self-compassion, you talk about, Megan. But also, I think we need to balance introspection with what I call outrospection, kind of word I've made up, which is the art of stepping into the shoes of other people and other cultures as a way of discovering who you are. And I think empathy is the ultimate art form for creating a new age of outrospection, because we all know that when you, we live our lives, often they can really expand when we have unusual encounters with strangers, with people who are very different from us, or when we're traveling and you think of your own life, often those have been the moments which have taken your lives in new directions. I remember once I, I actually live in the city of Oxford and there was this homeless guy I used to walk past all the time. And I never used to take any notice of him. He was always kind of muttering madly to himself and walking around with no shoes in the snow. And one day I stopped to talk to him and I discovered that actually he had a degree in politics, philosophy and economics from Oxford University. And we developed a friendship based on our love of moral philosophy and pepperoni pizza. And, you know, <laughs> out of that, I developed a friendship, yeah. um, which I never would have had unless I kind of made that empathic leap of trying to understand this other person person who I would have otherwise just kept walking past for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing is ask the question, isn't it? Don't say a kind word, ask the question. Yeah, I think you have to have the courage to get over the small talk of, you know, everyday life and, you know, really talk to people the stuff that matters to them. Because we all know everybody cares about love and death and courage. Everybody feels uncertainty, lacks of self-confidence. They don't feel good about themselves, all these kinds of things. So there's so many things we can connect with people, even when somebody seems very different from us. And we've got to find the ways of doing that. I used to run an organization called the Oxford Muse, spelled M-U-S-E, and we invited people to conversation meals. But instead of giving them a menu of food, 
uh, we give them a menu of conversation with questions about life on it, like what have you learned about the different varieties of love in your life or in what ways would you like to be courageous? And it was the opposite of speed dating. We've got people talking for an hour, not for a minute. And we get CEOs talking to homeless people or people in government departments or businesses talking to each other or young talking to old. And I think we ought to just try and do a little bit of that in our everyday life if we can. That's amazing. Next time I do a supper club, I'm doing a menu of conversation. Where can I get that menu from? Is that in the book? You can open my book, Empathy, and you can find a menu of conversation in there with little hors d'oeuvre, tasty conversational Ooh, tips. Ooh, amuse-bouches. Yeah, everything you need. <laughs> okay, Megan, tell us about body positivity for you. And do you think it's a kind of empathy for, for our own selves, for thyself? So body positivity as a movement is about respect for all bodies and that's that's beyond size. That's all shapes, all sizes, all ages, all skin colours, all genders, all abilities. All bodies are worthy of respect and they're good enough as they are. And it's also about not having to spend your entire life fighting against yourself to fit this physical image that our society tells us is perfection. So it's there's there's an incredible amount of empathy and not just towards yourself i think towards others you know i as a woman i kind of grew up feeling like all women were my competition and i think this is something that we are very much taught that we are in competition for the prize of beauty and when you kind of accept that all bodies are good enough and that there is beauty in everyone and actually there is value in all of us beyond what we look like you stop seeing everyone else as competition and you start to appreciate that they are kind of allies and I think for for women in particular you know other women they're not your competition they are your allies in this fight against the forces that are telling us we have to be in competition so yeah empathy abounds empathy I love it okay so body positive power has been a gigantic hit with readers and I think one of the main things when I'm reading it is your candidness um, the stories you tell right back from the beginning of your life and the complexities of body image and eating disorders that you've had and, and others around you. Could you read this bit for us? Three years ago, I sat across from my dad, tracing patterns in the dark wood table between us. We'd come out for some lunch and a chance to catch up on each other's lives. And I had something big that I was anxiously waiting to tell him about. I braced myself, I looked up from the table and I began. Hey, Dad. Yes, Megan. You know those body image issues that I've always had? In that moment, my dad could have been remembering any number of things. He could have thought back to when I was five years old and came home from school one day in my little blue check dress, clutching my stomach and asking him to tell me why was it so much bigger than the other girls. He might have remembered a time ten years later, standing beside my hospital bed, hoping for that day to be the one when I'd finally start to recover. He could have pictured me at any point in the years that had passed since then, at any of the nine different dress sizes and hundreds of pounds up and down that my body had spanned since. Of course, he didn't mention any of those times. Instead, he replied with an ever-so-cautious, Yes? I fixed them now, I said, waiting to see the disbelief spread across his face. I'm sure he was expecting me to launch into the details of the new diet plan I found and how it was the one that was finally going to make everything better, nothing like the ones before. I'm sure by now he knew not to get his hopes up. I started to explain that I'd found something, something that in just a few short months had changed my life, something called body positivity. Love it. That really resonates with me. Thank you very much. Do you feel that writing about your story through your book and long before that your blog has been part of a healing process for you? 
Absolutely. I think when I when I came into social media and I found this body positive online community three years ago, I was still carrying around a lot of pain and a lot of demons that were left over from my eating disorder. And at first I was using social media and I was using the community as a way to heal and and to learn about things like diet culture and eating disorders and why we start these walls with our body and it was it was a healing space for me and in turn that kind of transformed into me helping other people to heal as well which has been and it's such a fulfilling turn it's it gives those times in my life that were so dark that I have shared it gives them such a deeper meaning and a purpose um, and that is that's the most incredible feeling that's a perfect beautiful example of empathy isn't it megan's uh, connecting with the strangers absolutely because because basically we've been taught by modern culture to always just be looking after ourselves you know the big question of the self-help industry in the last 50 years has been what's in it for me but actually what you're saying megan is really interesting because so much of our well-being comes from giving to others giving often to complete strangers and what's beautiful about your story in a way is that you found something that you know has worked for you but also you can share it with other people and know that it's going to work with a whole other you know, community, you know, that's looking for a different kind of answer to those kinds of problems. And um, it's just, I think, proof of the fact that we're not just individual self-seeking creatures, but we are social animals, as the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, and you're kind of putting it into practice. Oh. And I love your name. It makes me smile. Body Posy Panda. That's your Instagram <laughs> name. What's the, what's the panda bit? Oh, my gosh. I, I, I wish I had like some deep and meaningful answer, but pandas are adorable. That's it. They're your fave. <laughs> They're your fave. Now, tell us about some of the most popular subjects that you cover in your book and on your social media channels. Um, you mentioned perfection. I feel you on that. I'm a Virgo. I I love a list. I love control. Uh, that That's when my be patient to yourself comes in. Um, tell us about perfection. I think that's a really big one. I think in terms of body image, in terms of physical perfection, we we very much grow up with everything around us saying that happiness is something that only comes when you hit perfection. And perfection is always a few more pounds down. Uh, in terms of the diet industry in particular, it's always this idea of you'll be happy when there is always something new to fix. There is always a new problem area that you can work on and then you will be happy. And it's kind of that realisation that that kind of perfection does not exist. It never has existed. It is it is literally made up and people are profiting off of it. Uh, and one of my favourite things to talk about is, is the diet industry and diet culture and how this idea of perfection was crafted by advertisers, really, uh, just over 100 years ago when they realised they could make a lot of money from telling people, women in particular, that their bodies weren't good enough. And this has seeped into our culture so much that we don't even realise we're being lied to and we're being manipulated every single day into this you'll be happy when. Um, and letting go of that perfectionism, it frees us all because ultimately we are more than that. We are more than what they say that we are or that we have to do with our bodies or look like. And we will not discover that until we say, you know what, your perfection is bullshit and I'm not buying it anymore. Love it. I mean, just what you're saying there also just made me think of being a parent. I've got twins who are nine years old, a boy and a girl. And especially when they were little, there was this idea of that I had to be a perfect parent. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered mm -hmm. the idea of good enough parenting. 
And I found it so liberating, the fact that actually I could be a bit of a crap parent sometimes. <laughs> I was absolutely fine. And my kids would turn out fine. It wouldn't be a disaster and leave them with terrible psychological scars. But that idea of the perfect parent, now I think of it and listening to has also been sold to us by the advertising industry and all sorts of pictures of the perfect family and sitcoms and that kind of stuff. And we need to liberate ourselves from that and just get a bit more real about who we are and who we want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I, perfectionism is such a damaging thing. And when I was doing research also on eating disorders in particular, the kind of anxiety that comes from always needing to be perfect and being the best that is the root of a lot of different mental health issues. And, and in terms of eating disorders, it's the, the perfectionism and the anxiety of, I can't control the world, let's put it into food. I can control these numbers. I can, I can have the perfect calorie count for the day. I can get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's, it's so damaging in so many ways. One video that I watched with you, Megan, is when you say something like... Um, on days when you're speaking to, to your following, on days when I'm not feeling my best, I will talk to myself as if I'm talking to my best friend. And I really love that. Could you give us some ideas of how you might say speak to yourself for, so someone could adopt those kind of conversations? I think you mentioned it as well, Roman, when you said good enough. I think that saying I am enough is a really powerful thing that we can say. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I am enough. Yeah, absolutely. And positive affirmations, some people think they're kind of cheesy. I think I love as, cheese. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with a bit of cheese. <laughs> I think as part of like a, a wider plan, they can really, really work. And my favourite personally, when I'm talking about my body, is to say my body is how it is supposed to be because we're being bombarded constantly of this is how you should look. No, this is how you should look. Do this, do that. And just to come back at that and say I am how I am supposed to be right now in this moment this is good enough, that is really, really reassuring and really powerful. And for you, I keep thinking about the strangers. I mean, I kind of want to run out and chat to a stranger now. <laughs> Any days that you don't feel your best, I imagine you have a lot of time when you're writing at home by yourself because you've written five books. Um, what are, what are, the, are some tips you adopt? One of the things I do each day, which might sound a little bit weird, is I give myself the gift of a daily death pause. And what I mean by that is I sit and I just for a few minutes and think about my own mortality, the fact that I may not be here forever. And I write about this in this new book of mine, Carpe Diem Regained, because we so often, you know, don't think about that our life is short and time is ticking and we are checking our phones 110 times a day and spending 10 hours, you know, a day online. And in my daily death pause, I like to just kind of put my life in perspective and who I am. So I don't just think of myself you know, lying in a coffin, you know, sort of dead and pale. I do little experiments like one I call the, the dinner party of the afterlife. So imagine you're dead, right? And you go along to this dinner party in the afterlife and there are all the other yous who you could have been if you had made different choices. So there's the you that actually studied really hard and followed your dream to become a a vet. There's the you who made the effort to make your marriage work rather than letting it fall apart. There's the you maybe who became an alcoholic and never recovered from it. And you could ask yourself, which of these many selves, these alternative yous, would you like to be or possibly become? And I think that's a way of almost trying to think about the nature of regret, projecting yourself to the end of your life. And actually, now I think about it, Megan, listen to what you say. You might look at these other yous and say, actually, I'm totally okay with the one that I am you know, right now. And I think that can be as liberating as thinking, 
actually maybe there's another self that I want to be because I find that whole kind of experiment quite motivating because if I'm feeling a bit down I want to try and get my energy up mm. think I'm going to take my life in some different direction mm. and the death pause as I call it is quite a healthy way to do that that is fascinating mm. people often ask who would you like at your dinner party dead or alive and you're thinking about the, all the selves you could have been, the ones you could be, reflecting, love it, no regrets. Yeah, I think a lot of people, since the 1970s actually, psychotherapists have been trying to get us to do these experiments, like the idea of writing your own obituary and, and what would it look like. Or another famous one was in the 1970s, they got people to draw a line, just a straight line. At the beginning, on the, on the left is your birth, and the end is your death. And the idea is you're supposed to put an X across where you are right now and just to think about that for five minutes which is kind of quite stark but I quite like the dinner party at the end of the afterlife as another way of you know projecting yourself to the end of your life because who wants to live with regret who wants to look back yes. and think that they had spent 43 years being a lawyer but was unhappy you know doing that and mm -hmm. I think we all need to find choices and places to rethink who we are. Could I ask though do you ever get stuck in the death pools and it becomes more <laughs> of a Less a, motivating thing. A Debbie Downer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so far. I mean, this was the whole idea of existential philosophy, the idea that when you look into the abyss of, you know, the fact of the shortness of life and the possibility of death and the, you know, how do you make choices when there are so many options and you get paralysed and end up doing nothing at all? And for the existentialist, this could be quite a downer, that idea. And what do we really do with our freedom? I don't really feel in, in that kind of way. I feel a bit more positive about it and I think that whole idea for example of engaging you know when I'm feeling really crap mm. about my life one of the things I do is I spend a lot of time with other people with yes. friends with strangers whoever it is I try and step out of myself and that's again where kind of outrospection is one of the keys to the art of living. I on that note I've got four god kids and I love throwing myself into you know a soft play center with them because they they don't stop and regret they just go for it and they laugh and they tumble and they cry and then they get back up I love it. Megan do you have any top tips do you write gratitude lists or what do you do and as well as speaking to yourself your affirmations anything else you do? I think that it is really really important to this kind of a, a similar thing surround yourself with the I guess the kind of energy that you want to be getting back so it, particularly in terms of social media um, I think people don't realize how easy it is to cultivate your social media into a space that doesn't make you feel crap about yourself and actually you are allowed to almost create this safe space and unfollow people who make you feel rubbish about yourself and fill it up with people who are diverse physically and people who are putting positivity into the world as well so that's something that I always have so even if I'm not having the greatest day I have a safe space to come back to I have people who are talking about body positivity um, to put me back into that that good place uh, and I read a lot of books um, some great books are The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf uh, Losing It by Laura Fraser Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon there is so much wisdom out there there is so much knowledge out there about these things and I think one of the most difficult parts about body image in general is that we all feel that we are alone um, and that we are the the only ones struggling and it's all our fault but actually there's so much out there to make to make you realize that you are not alone and, and none of this actually is your fault. Mm. On that point with Megan saying so much of the time we feel like we're on our own does that come from our fixation on introspection and going it alone and I think that reason for that aloneness comes from lots of sources. Of course, one in four people in Britain today say that they are chronically lonely, that they have no deep 
you know, firm, meaningful relationships or friendships. Um, one of the sources of that, I think, is that the 20th century was the century of the self, where we were told to always look after number one, that kind of thing, and that community and collectivity didn't matter as much. Another cause has been things like urbanization, living in big cities where we've lost that connection with the people who we lived on our street. We may not even know them as we may have done when we lived in smaller communities. And then there's that question of online loneliness, that there are two billion people online, but how do you create those communities and in ways that make you feel connected? I mean, a lot of my own online experience is just having a look at the rude comments that people leave on my YouTube videos and stuff like that, because anonymity allows that. But as you say, Megan, I think in a way, the next stage of evolution of our online selves is to not use it to you know, show off and be narcissists, but to actually create communities to not feel alone, to try and use it for a cure for loneliness and to create empathy. And we're not very good at that yet. And of course, partly because, you know, most social media apps are designed to connect us with people who are quite like us or share our music tastes or whatever, and not connect us with people who are different from us. Um, people maybe from other cultures and other lands or other generations. And so I think we need to find different ways of creating online relationships. You're listening to Live Life Better. On the subject of reflection, does a healthy mind lead to a healthy body? Is lifestyle and lifespan really that intertwined? GP, researcher and television presenter Dr. Rangan Chatterjee believes there's a system that can help. We caught up with him to hear about his new book, The Four Pillar Plan. What I'm about to say probably sounds far-fetched, but here it is. The health problems of the majority of patients I see, yes, the majority, are driven entirely by their lifestyle. It's not cuts or bruises or bacteria or a fungus or a virus or some tumour or hereditary disorder that's the source of their pain, but the way they're choosing to live. Their conditions are very often exacerbated by the fact that they're super busy. They wake up fully stressed, rush to get the kids ready, do the school run, come back, try to juggle their jobs and their home life. On top of that, they might have other family members who require care and attention. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From the moment they open their eyes, it's all go, go, go. Then, when their kids are finally in bed, they're straight onto their emails or social media. At no point in the day are they just chilling out or even alone. Everything they do is for someone else. When I mention this in my surgery, they roll their eyes telling me, but I just don't have time for me. To which I reply, well, that right there is your problem. My name's Dr. Rongan Chasji. I'm a GP, I'm a BBC television presenter, and I'm author of The Four Pillar Plan, my new book, from which I've just read a small excerpt. I've been seeing patients now for nearly 17 years, and during that time I've realised that pretty much all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do. Well, the science over the last few years is very compelling, and what it's told us is that 10% of our health outcome is due to our genes, but a whopping 90% is due to our environment and the way we choose to live our lifestyles. 
But that's remarkable. If we take one condition, type 2 diabetes, right, type 2 diabetes is reaching epidemic proportions. At least 4 million people in the UK have got it. This is a condition that is driven almost entirely by our lifestyles and our environments. And it's costing the UK, in direct and indirect costs, at least £20 billion a year. On an individual health level, these implications are huge, but also on a wider societal level, it's the sort of thing that's going to bankrupt the National Health Service. It's going to make this health system unsustainable. The way we save the NHS, the way we save healthcare systems around the world is we take the pressure of lifestyle illness off them. That's what I think we need to do. So I'd always had this slight disconnect there. But the turning point for me was probably well, just over seven years ago now when my son, who's now seven and a half, he was six months old and he had a convulsion. He stopped moving. We were incredibly scared. It was without doubt the scariest few days of my entire life. And it actually transpired that what had happened to him was that he had a low level of calcium in his blood that was caused by a preventable vitamin deficiency. That was pretty hard for me to take, you know, on the, just as a father, but, you know, as a doctor as well. That really set me off on a journey where I became obsessed with the goal of getting my son back to full health as if this had never happened. And I started to come across all kinds of science and research that I didn't know about. And I thought, well, this is not only going to help my son, it's going to help my patients. So it's changed the way that I view medicine. And this book that I've written is really a way for me to give that information to people. I want to educate people. I want to inspire them so that they can transform their health. And I think giving people that knowledge and information is the first step. The book is split up into four key areas, relaxation, food, movement, and sleep. And in each of those areas, there are five suggestions not prescriptions, suggestions that people might want to think about applying in their own life. So I'm going to pick four tips, one from each pillar. And these are going to be simple things that everybody can do at home. In the relaxed pillar, I say think about having some me time every day. It's such a small thing, but it's deceptively effective. Getting some me time every day is probably the thing that most of my patients and probably myself, struggle with the most because it's a thing that we think can wait. And the minute you get up, you're on your phone, emails, tweets, to-do lists, work. But I tell you, it can't wait. So many patients have come back and seen me and said, hey, doc, you gave me permission to relax. And I thought as a doctor, my job has never been to give anyone permission to do anything. But actually, with 21st century living, I think people need that permission to relax you might have to diary it in. It's got to be something you do by yourself. It's got to be something that you do that you enjoy. And it's got to be something that does not involve your phone. So for me, I love going and sitting in a cafe with a nice cup of coffee, and just chilling out for 10 to 15 minutes. The next tip is from the eat pillar. And actually, I'm going to go with when you eat as opposed to what you eat. If we focus on the timing of our food, I think that's a different way to look at things. And I've seen it have profound benefits very, very quickly. So a simple tip about food is eat all of your food within a 12-hour window. We know that in those 12 hours where you're not eating, you kick in this process in your body called autophagy, which is basically house cleaning. Your body is cleaning up in those 12 hours, but in our modern lives, we're not giving our bodies a break. So we've got food in the cupboard, we're grabbing it, we're in front of the telly. So I feel very strongly that this is a very simple intervention with a huge, huge positive benefit. In the move pillar, there's a ton of tips, but the one I'm going to focus on here right now 
it's about walking at least 10,000 steps per day. We've all got smartphones these days, and I've spoken a bit about the problems that that can sometimes lead to, but there are many benefits. And one of the benefits is that you can track your steps very, very easily. I have found with some patients, it's a bit of motivation because if you can measure it, you can do something about it. And finally, my last tip comes from the sleep pillar. Now, there's a chapter in the sleep pillar called Create a Bedtime Routine. The whole concept that actually we know for those of us who have children that actually we need to wind our kids down. We need to have a little routine to get them in the right frame of mind so they can drift off and go into a nice, deep, relaxing sleep. But somehow as adults, we think the rules don't apply to us. So I think having a little routine in the evening is just as important for adults as it is for kids. And something very actionable within that is something that I call a no-tech 90. It's this whole idea that for 90 minutes before bed, you basically switch off your technology. You know, when we're looking at those screens in the evening, it's changing our hormone levels. Right? We've got a hormone called melatonin that helps us go to sleep. We know that these devices lower our hormone levels off melatonin. If we had a drug that could do that, you know, it would have warnings on it. But yet we're doing that every night. So if 90 minutes is too much, start with 30 minutes. Move it up to 60 minutes. You know, this is not a prescriptive book. I want people to personalize this book for them in their own lifestyles. I think that's what is missing these days. It's, oh, this is the one way to eat. This is the one way to do it. You know what? We're all different. We've all got different lives. We've all got different expectations of what we want out of health. There are so many practical tools that I know can help people if they just give it a chance. And life is tricky. Life will throw curveballs at you. And when it does, I hope that people peel it back off the shelf and go, hey, you know what? Work's been a bit stressful recently. I could do with a bit of help on relaxation. And they just peel it back off the shelf and they go into the relax pillar and go, right, I'm going to try these strategies. I want this book to help people throughout their lives and I really believe it will. You're listening to the Live Life Better podcast from Virgin in association with Penguin Living. And thanks there to Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. And if you're inspired by the four pillars, let us know by tweeting at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag Live Life Better. I'm back in the studio now with Megan Jane Crabb and Roman Krasnarek. And today we've been talking healthy habits from the BOPO movement to an empathy revolution. Now, Megan, as a social media star with 900,000 followers on Instagram, I'm just going to round that up to a mill. How easy is it for you to take time away from social media? Not particularly. Um, I am terrible at knowing when to take a break. It's it's an interesting thing because you can become so immersed in that community and so lost in it that you kind of forget that there is a real world outside happening off of your phone. Um, and I have been a lot more disciplined with myself lately in taking breaks, whether that's a day or even a week. Uh, but it's, there's a huge sense of responsibility, I think, as well, because there are people on there who kind of are looking to my page for comfort on a daily basis and I don't want to let them down and I, I, I don't want to leave them hanging for a day that maybe they're feeling especially vulnerable and they, and they need a boost. So yeah, it's finding a balance where I, I can help them as much as possible while also protecting myself and having some boundaries for my, myself as well. Mm. And I guess that's why though, the book's going to be helpful, isn't it? Because it's this pocket guide that you can take everywhere. You know, I always say books that books that go to the loo with you are the best kind of books, right? That's that's pretty much the only time we get to ourselves. Um, and I was laughing as well before when you said that the the in real life aspect, I like how we have to now define in real life as, you know, IRL in real life because it's assumed the rest is is online. 
And um, before we were chatting earlier, weren't we? You said you called it, I called it my digital detox. What did you call it? A digital diet. A digital diet. Not even a detox, the diet. Okay. Yeah. Talk us through it. Well, I'm quite into putting myself on a pretty much a permanent digital diet because we live in an age of distraction where, you know, in our pockets, we've got little gambling machines, in effect, like slot machines, always wanting to check if we've got another notification as if we were trying to check whether we just get ping, you know, three (laughs) cherries in a row. Um, And of course, we are also addicted to things like television. The average Westerner watches TV for three hours a day. That means by the time you are 75, you will have watched telly for nine years continuously. I'm not sure I want to get to the end of my life and think I, you know, really dedicated nearly a a decade decade of my life to secondhand experience, even when I know it can be energizing and inspiring and I can learn to cook and think and learn about politics and stuff like that. So I like the idea of a digital diet. I do it in different ways. In fact, if you come over to my house for lunch, you'll be invited to leave your phone in a little box in the hallway as you come in, just like polite medieval diners would have left their (laughs) weapons at the door when they came in. Now, my friends find that quite difficult because we are so addicted. In my own everyday life, um, I, for example, when I sit down to work at nine o'clock in the morning, I turn my internet connection off for four hours. I use apps like Antisocial, which stops my uh, connection to Facebook or whatever sites that I want to ban myself from looking at. And, you know, like lots of people, I just try and check my emails or go online at various points in the day and I allow myself 30 minutes here or 10 minutes there. And I find that, you know, enough for me because I just waste so much time. In fact, writing my last book, I realized that I'd wasted just over six months and four days on checking up online when I should have been actually working. And so it took me six months. Yeah, it took me six months longer than I needed to to write my book. And that's completely mad. Um, And very quickly, how have you decided how you feel about your kids and social media? They're only nine. Cross that bridge. My kids are only nine. We have no iPads in the house and we don't have a TV in the house. In fact, we used to have a TV up in the cupboard at the top of the stairs and you had to bring it down two flights of stairs oh, if you wanted not to watch the anything. Effort. No, exactly. It never was. So we don't have a telly now. Now, So my kids have almost no exposure to a screen, but I know it's going to come and we're not going to try and stop them. But what we're trying to do, me and my partner as parents, is give them as many other kinds of experiences and interests as they can get before they start being inundated by their online life so that they can make a choice between you know, spending their time on social media or whatever it is, climbing trees, playing chess, doing theatre. It's about making them realise that there are a variety of experiences out there. And the online ones might be very fantastic, but sometimes they may not be as good. I mean, we want to give them that choice. And that's where we are now. I mean, so our kids don't quite realise how draconian we are yet, but they will. <laughs> Um, actually, speaking about a, an experience I missed out on as a kid, so I cook for a living now, but I didn't cook as a kid. Um, we didn't do it at school and there was never enough time, I think, in the afternoons for my mum to show me what to do. And it's funny now because it's my it's my world. Uh, so food. Um, lots of people think in January, come 1st of January, they must overhaul their diet. They must ban, they must uh, detox and all of these things. Diet culture, the even just on my feed, even people that I don't follow, I see the words coming up, diet, um, throw out, start again, ban. All of these are negative words. Um, something I stay clear of, and that's why I like my freezer fill, so I can dig into my my freezer of goodness. Megan, anti-dieting, you have something very powerful in the back of your book, and it is called The Pledge to Stop Dieting, and you urge us readers to sign it. Could you tell us about 
the pledge and why you included it? Did you always mean to include that pledge? The pledge was kind of accidental, although I'm like, I'm loving people sending me the pictures of it, like on their fridge and in their bedroom. That's fantastic. But dieting in general is something that I have very strong opinions about. Uh, the My favourite chapter in the whole book is the chapter that is about dieting and about the industry. So what I did is research the entire diet industry, how it started, where it came from, who really profits from it. And I put that all into the book along with my own experiences because after I recovered, well, kind of recovered from anorexia, I spent so many years dieting and binging and, you know, on that never-ending cycle of you restrict, you slip up, you eat everything, you restrict, you slip up, you eat everything, and it just goes on and on and on and on. So dieting hurt me in a lot of ways. Because not only did it hurt me physically, it hurt me mentally. I was obsessed. All I ever thought about every single day was calories and pounds and inches and what was going to be on the scale the next day. And ultimately, when you are that trapped in that world where numbers are all that matters and your body is all that matters, you don't live. You're not living your life. You're not out in the world because you're so focused inwards. And that's all you can think about. So when I realised that dieting has been invented by people who want to profit from our insecurities. Uh, it's not something that's that's been around forever. Dieting for weight loss in terms of our appearance has only become really, really popular since the 1920s and is one of the biggest money-making industries in the world. I got pissed off because I was like, <laughs> I wasted all those years of my life for people to be making money off of me. And you know what? It doesn't work. It truly doesn't. You know, the research shows that between 92 and 98% of diets fail. We think that's our fault. It's not. It's how we're biologically programmed to respond to deprivation. So diets don't work. It's not our fault when they don't work. And people are profiting from us thinking that we have to keep going on them. So my whole thing is stop dieting and start living in the body that you have right now because you are so deserving of that life. No matter what you weigh, no matter how you look, you are worthy of that. Mm. And I really get what you say is when you said it hurts, it, it you realise how much it hurt you in so many different ways, physically, emotionally, um, the, the regret of wasting so much time and also your mental health. And I think when I watch your videos, I love your videos when you're dancing. I mean, I grin when I watch you dancing. If you've not watched Megan dancing, <laughs> she is the best dancer. I need to watch Megan dancing. You need to watch dancing, Megan dancing is one of the things I'm most frightened of in the whole world, apart what? from singing. Wow. Yeah, really? Huge inhibitions around dancing. So I'm going to watch those particular. Okay. Ones. I would love to see you do a Don't Hate the Shake. Maybe we should do a do the shake at the end of this. <laughs> I think we're going to do the shake at the end of this. Well, I mean, group dancing is really important because it's one of the ways in terms of mental health, how we bring ourselves into the present moment. So, you know, you're going, you're at a rave. There's this sort of almost collective consciousness, like a, a whole body. You step outside yourself. It's what the ancient Greeks called ecstasis, to step outside yourself. It's a kind of ultimate empathy. And this is partly where dancing is really, really important. And if you go through all anthropological literatures about different cultures, they've held their communities together by dancing. Every culture has invented dancing. It's only dancing alone which emerged in the 19th century in Europe as a kind of parallel to the rise of mass consumerism, which has started to separate ourselves from each other. And dieting is part of that same kind of history. We're trying to sell a different version of what it is to be human, a very individualized one um, and a very one that's very kind of afraid, not one that's very connected. Did you know that, Megan? When you started that shake, that you're inspiring a revolution. I didn't know that. Now I feel like there needs to be a, a group don't hate the shake. 
nationwide. We're going to start it today. Okay, so to finish off, so we can get on for the shake, a um, couple last thoughts. If you could go back and speak to your younger selves, what are you going to say, Megan? Oh, God, on the spot. Um, I think one of the main things that my younger self really needed to hear and needed to believe was just the idea of being enough, of not having to spend years and years and years reaching and 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 destroying myself to be more and more or physically less and less. Uh, just learning how to be content in, in who I was um, and, and that I was enough, which is probably easier said than done. But yeah, that's what I would say. So you'd say you're, you're enough. Yeah. And Roman, to baby Roman, baby to younger Roman. Roman. What a thought. I mean, the thing about human beings is that we're really bad judges of our future selves. You know, when you're young, you think, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be this. I want to be a that. And then you maybe go down that path and it's a complete disaster. So what I would say to my younger self is remember that all life is an experiment. And the more failures you have, the better. I always remember that bit from the film Dead Poets Society where Robin Williams, playing the inspiring school teacher, Mr Keating, turns to the boys at his 1950s New England boys' school and says, we're food for worms, lads, because each <laughs> and every one of us in this room is going to stop breathing, grow cold and die. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And if we're going to do that, we have to learn to fail and to feel OK about failure and to not try and think that everything always has to be perfect. Was Carpe Diem Regained inspired by Robin Williams? It was. I watched that <laughs> film in 1989 and I thought, I want to live like that. But of course, I don't. I spend all my life writing books in my tiny study. And uh, it's a bit of an irony. I spent three years writing a book about seizing the day inside a tiny little room. But now I'm out in the world to grasp it and get something from it. I love it. I'm feeling very inspired. I'm going to enjoy my healthy habits. I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm going to be patient to myself and I'm going to chat to strangers, as many as I can find. Megan and Roman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you thank both. You. We'd love to hear how this show might have inspired you to live life better. So come and get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag live life better. All the book titles we've talked about today are out now. Body Positive Power from Megan Jane Crabb, Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It, and Carpe Diem Regained by Roman Krasnarek. And of course, The Four Pillar Plan by Dr. Rungan Chatterjee. You can find out more about the authors on this show over at virgin.com, plus more motivational podcasts and tips. And for an exclusive piece from Dr. Rungan on how to live a long and healthy life, you can sign up to our newsletter at penguin.co.uk forward slash newsletter forward slash penguin living. A huge thanks again to my guests and join me again in two weeks time. From me, Melissa Hemsley, goodbye. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, or have worries about diet, eating disorders, or mental health, one of the most important things you can do is talk to someone, such as your GP. But there are also a number of charities offering their ear if you need to speak to someone in confidence, such as the Samaritans at samaritans.org.